0: Today's scripture reading comes from John four forty three through 54. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Canaan in Galilee, The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea in Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
1: Good morning. good morning. My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at the downtown campus, Christ Community. It's good to be with you this morning. We are continuing on in our series in the Gospel of John, uh, which makes sense because the Scripture reading was from John 4, right? So it makes sense. Uh, and we, our series is called Word Made Flesh. And recently, over the last couple of weeks, we've been tracking Jesus' movements in his public ministry as John records them. And in our passage today, John is recording a particular interaction between Jesus and this Roman official And this Roman official would have been considered an outsider. So that makes it a controversial interaction. But even more, it is an emotionally charged interaction. There is an intensity to this situation. There is a desperation to this situation. And to try to help us grasp that desperation, I want to start off by just asking a question. And this question might feel a bit extreme, especially for the start of a sermon, so just bear with me and go with me here, okay? The question's this. If your child was dying, what would you do to save them? If your child was dying, what would you do to save their life? (laughs) Something went wrong, so I'll try again. So let's ask that one more time. If, if your child was dying, what would you do to save them? Now, in case you weren't aware, I don't have any children. I'm a 30-year-old man who with no kids who lives in a one-bedroom apartment that is often filled with silence. And if there is no silence, the noise that is inhabiting my apartment is coming from the rock album that I'm playing on my record player, which I know is predictable by the way I dress. Okay, I understand that. <laughs> But anyways, I know for those who have kids that one, silence is precious, but more importantly, and I'm thinking of my parents and some of my friends, they would all say this, there isn't a greater fear that they have than something terrible happening to one of their children. That is their biggest fear. And Nicholas Woltersdorf, a longtime Christian philosophy professor who taught at top schools such as Yale and, and others, he's one of the most influential philosophers in the modern era. As you might imagine, he's written many books, some pioneering books in philosophy. But probably the most compelling thing that he's ever written is this very tiny book. It's a book called Lament for a Son. And the story behind this book is that Woltersdorf lost one of his sons in a mountain climbing accident. And quite a few years later, he published his journal, his journal writings from the time when his son had passed. His journal is that book, Lament for a Son. And the book begins with Walter Storff saying this in the introduction. If someone asks, who are you? Tell me about yourself. I say, not immediately, but shortly, I am one who lost a son. That loss determines my identity. Not all of my identity, but much of it. It belongs with my story. I struggle, indeed, to go beyond merely owning my grief towards not owning it redemptively. But I will not, and I cannot disown it. Let me briefly name that I know some of you here this morning have experienced the tragedy of losing a child. There's probably very little you wouldn't do to have your child back. Those of you who have experienced that, carry with you a unique burden, one of heartache, longing, and grief. And losses, whether it's the loss of a child or the loss of something else, the loss of a partner, a parent, a job, a friend, a dream even, whatever it might be, losses have a way of defining who we are. Two years ago, I went through a very difficult period of my life. And during that time, someone close to me suggested that I read Lament for a Son. And that book was a great gift to me, not because I had lost a child, but because I had experienced great loss. And the book was a help in the process of just grieving that loss. And maybe you're the same. Maybe you don't have kids or you've never lost a child, but many of us have experienced great loss in our lives. And if you have, you have tasted a longing and a grief so strong it at times can physically hurt. And if you have experienced loss, you know it rarely comes with immediate healing. Losses change us. They make us different. And if we're honest, the wounds often stay. In our passage, we find a man who's on the brink of a great loss. And he is in the middle of desperation to try to fix that. He's on the brink of this loss, this tragedy, this experience which has already left an impact on him. He's about to lose his son. And in our passage, we get a window into true faith. And what I mean by that is we're able to observe through this story of this man and how Jesus responds to him, how faith, real faith, informs our lives, particularly in moments of desperation. We're going to observe three things about true faith. Let me show you. If you have your Bibles with you, whether it's on your phone or something else, I encourage you to turn to John chapter 4. And while you do that, I'm going to give you some context to where we've been. Right before our passage, John, or Jesus has an encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. And this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I think it's one of the most beautiful in the Bible, actually. Not only because she sees Jesus for who he is, or not just because she sees Jesus for who he is. like She doesn't think that he's some good teacher she doesn't think he's a miracle worker no this is what she says about Jesus she goes he is the one who sees me and after this encounter Jesus goes back to his home region which is a place called Galilee and at the beginning of our passage you'll see it in a second John warns us as readers this is the place where Jesus is welcomed back but ultimately he's not really received all that well Jesus is basically going back to his hometown, like the surrounding areas, the people that know him, right? They know his family, they know his half-siblings, they're just well aware of who he is and how he grew up, they know what school he went to, et cetera, et cetera, right? They do not respond well to what he is doing. Listen to how John starts our passage. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has, I'm sorry, Jesus has testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So they, again, they did end up welcoming him, but they really only welcomed him because they wanted a show. You see, Jesus was a big hit. There were crowds that were following him. Do you remember earlier in John's Gospel, Jesus changes water into wine, right? And that happened in Cana, in Galilee. So all these people who are welcoming him know of that miracle, and surely they've heard about it, and they're looking for something cool to happen again. That's why they're following him. Ultimately, these crowd, crowds aren't really interested in Jesus. What they want is a show. That's what they're after. They want to see the next miracle. But then all of a sudden, Jesus meets this man from Capernaum. And this is what John says So he came again into Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water into wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man had heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. What does Jesus tell us about this man? Well, he's an official. So most likely this means he worked for King Herod, who was this like puppet ruler for for Rome in the area. And Herod was hated by the Jews. So by proxy, this guy would have been hated as well. That's why he would have been considered an outsider. But because he was a Roman official, there was no doubt He was a man of power. He was a guy who was used to being in control. He's a guy who got what he wanted. He had the money. He had the influence. He had the authority. He had the connections to be able to provide for himself the life that he wanted. Through his resources and his power, he was able to insulate himself from the problems many people in that era were facing. To put it in another way, when others looked at this guy, they would have said, that guy, he has it all. That guy's got it. And this man did have everything. He did. Well, apart from one thing. He had everything but a healthy son. And he was a man on the brink of a great loss. Everything had been in his control until it wasn't, right? He, he had a kid who is sick. This is his worst nightmare. And he's looking like he's going to have to bury his son. What would you do in this situation? He had all the resources and the power to get the right treatment for his son. None of it was working. Would you be able to sleep until you had a solution? What things would you do in desperation to save your child? Well, this guy, this is what he does. He walks 20 miles to visit a Jewish rabbi he'd only heard a few rumors about. That's what this guy does. He heard this guy could work miracles, and he's so desperate that he's giving it a shot. Would you? Would you give that a shot? See, this guy is not here just to see a show. You all right, Charlie? Yeah. Okay. This guy's, yeah, this guy's not here just to see a show. He's not here to witness a miracle. He finds himself in the desperate place where he needs the miracle. And this is the first important observation about true faith that we can grasp. And here it is. True faith begins in our need. True faith, real faith, begins in our need. And let me explain what I mean by this. When I hear people talk about faith, when I hear like, people describe their faith, I sometimes hear people describe their faith as something sit- that sits opposite to reason. So they'll say something like this, well when it just comes down to it, faith is just about having it. You just have to have faith. And they don't realize it, but this description of faith is a reaction against the modernist argument that faith stands opposite of reason, that you can't have both of them together. The modernist argument says that science has killed the need for faith. We have enough data now that we don't really need God. And now there are many post I mean, but there's many postmodern arguments, particularly not even Christian arguments, against this line of thinking. But the predominant view in our post-Christian West, and sometimes even in our own paradigm of faith in the church, is that faith stands opposed to reason. Now go with me here. At the time John was writing this, when he was penning this, that is not the paradigm he understood, faith, for faith. For him, faith did not stand opposite of reason. No, you could have both. To John, faith stood opposite to something else. And that thing was self sufficiency. So again, faith wasn't incompatible with reason, right? Those two things could be held together using our God given minds. Instead, what faith is incompatible with is self sufficiency. Faith requires acknowledging that you can't do it on your own. Faith does not require you to throw out your brain. Faith requires you to say, by using your brain, I am a person who needs help from something totally outside of myself. And let's be real with each other. Many of us live privileged, wealthy lives that allow us to insulate ourselves from the realities that much of the world experiences. We have the resources to be able to create, and cultivate, and control, curate a life that is most comfortable for us, where we are ultimately in control. And because of that, it's easy to forget that there is, in fact, a lot outside of our control. That's where the problem is. It is impossible to insulate ourselves from everything. There are times when our resources cannot spare us from the losses, difficulties, and tragedies of life. The Christian spiritualist writer Henri Nouwen asks it this way in his book, With Burning Hearts. He goes, what do we do with our losses? What to do with our losses? What what happens when we experience loss? Well, that's the first question that faces us. Are we hiding them? Are we going to live as if they're not real? Are we going to keep them away from our fellow travelers? Are we going to convince ourselves or others that our losses are little compared to theirs, to our gains? Are we going to blame someone? We do all of these things most of the time, but there is another possibility. What do we do when we encounter loss? What do we do when things happen that are outside of our control? Who do we become in those moments? Where do we go for security? Where do we turn? Or maybe the better question is to whom do we turn? In our passage there is this man. He's a father with a sick son. He's on the brink of a great loss, the brink of a great tragedy. He's desperate. He might have all the resources in the world, but he doesn't have the resources to be able to save his son. So what does he do? He turns to Jesus. And I'm only 30 years old. I've been a pastor for a good 12 minutes now. I always say that. I know there's a lot of life I haven't seen. In fact, there's a lot of people in this room who have seen more than me, who have experienced more loss than me, who have felt more heartache than I have, who have been through situations that I can only imagine. But as I have had the privilege to walk through moments of desperation with people, things often get pretty simple. Life doesn't become more complex in times of desperation as far as I can see, they become less complex. You see it when it comes to engaging Jesus in those moments. Things are pretty simple, we have two options. You can lean into him, or you can lean away from him. Here's the rub, to lean in means to recognize our need. To lean away is to try to muster up within our own strength the ability to be self-sufficient, And we can do that well for a while. Some of us actually can do that really, really well. But it takes its toll. Situations that are outside of our control confront us with the uncomfortable notion that we can't do it on our own. We actually have need for Jesus. We need someone outside of ourselves, someone wholly other than us, someone who has no limits, and this someone will intervene in our lives to offer us heavenly resources that give us real healing, real hope, tangible strength, and peace. Let me just say one more thing on this point that true faith begins in our need. And I'll start it with a question. Do you know what the first record of Jesus' public teaching is that we have in the New Testament? What's the first thing that Jesus says? Thank you, Charlie. You're on it, man. If you open up your Bible and you open it to the New Testament and you flip a few pages in, you're going to find Jesus' first words. And these are in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew records Jesus sitting down on the side of a mountain. And the first thing Jesus says, the first thing God, when he comes to earth in the form of a man, says to humanity is this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the first thing God says when he becomes man and speaks to humanity, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's kind of confusing, isn't it? Most of us get tripped up in that poor in spirit part. What does poor in spirit mean? Well, it basically means destitute in spirit. In other words, it means admitting that you have need for Jesus. This verse could really read, blessed are those who know that they have need for me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, the first thing that Jesus says is that faith starts simple. He says it's recognizing that you need me recognizing that you need me. And if you can admit that, if you can trust me, he goes, if you can trust me in that, follow me, then the kingdom of heaven is yours. Friends, faith always begins by recognizing our need. Always does. And maybe you're here because you've recognized that need. Maybe that's true of you. Or maybe you are here and you haven't discovered that yet or you're like learning to discover that. Whatever the case may be, God uses the realities of our lives to confront us with the fact we won't always be able to ignore that need. So are you leaning in, or are you leaning away? What will you do? The passage doesn't stop there. It keeps going. Look with me at verses 47 through 48. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him, and he asked him to come down and to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now let me point out just one thing before we keep going. This is just a sidebar, side observation. Isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't automatically heal his son? That's kind of interesting. Maybe we wouldn't expect that from Jesus. Jesus doesn't do that. And if I'm honest, I think this is Jesus' way of saying, hey, 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 hold up for a second. Let me call out something obvious. You want me right now for what I can do for you you don't actually want me. Jesus is a realist. He sees things for who they are. Jesus sees the seed of faith in this man's heart, and he's going to end up watering it. He sees that. We're going to get there. But at the same time, he's also going to confront and strip away the other stuff. Jesus calls out that part of him that only wants Jesus for what Jesus can do for him, not because of who Jesus really is. Herman Ritterboss, the Dutch theologian, writes of this passage Jesus did not want to give the Son back to the Father. He wanted to give Him Himself. Here's the point we can't have a consumer relationship with Jesus. It's <laughs> not how it works. We can't come to Him for what we want and then leave Him behind. That works great for a target pickup order, right? It <laughs> doesn't work great for relationships. It's not how it works. And I'll say this directly. If you are wanting a relationship worth any value, if you are wanting a relationship worth any value with another person, then you cannot see that person as a way to serve your needs, meet your desires, and then leave them or push them aside when they don't do that. That's any relationship of value with any person. Your friend, your partner, and a relationship with Jesus, too. Jesus wants a real relationship with you, marked by real love, real attachment, real commitment, joy, peace, goodness, and true fulfillment. And just like in any relationship, none of that will come if we are only chasing Jesus for what he can give us. When it feels like he can't give us what we want, we'll just go find it somewhere else. Is your hope in what Jesus can get you Or is your hope in the fact that you get Jesus? All right, that was a sidebar. Let's keep going. After Jesus calls that out, the man responds, and John says, this is what the man said. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Here's the second observation about true faith. True faith asks, and it keeps asking. True faith asks, and it keeps asking. And if I'm honest with you, I'm not sure how good I am at asking. (laughs) <laughs> that's basically my way of saying that's basically my way of saying I'm not, I'm not good at asking <laughs> I'm not I'm often terrible at asking for help I feel bad when people offer help to me because I just don't want to inconvenience them I don't know if that's pride or like what it is but this official in our passage has no problem asking for help he is desperate and he asks and he follows up his ask with another one and what he is asking can be summed up in one word I think one word and that's help help. Help me, Jesus. True faith means that we get good at asking Jesus for help. In a relationship with Jesus, there is real dependency. Jesus desires us to actually, deeply, and truly depend on him. And a lot of the Christian life is simply learning how to get better and quicker at asking for help from Jesus. One simple way, like what we see in our passage, is to invite Jesus into those areas or those situations in our lives where we are desperate. That is one area to get better and quicker at asking for help. There are days and weeks and months and seasons of our lives where we are pushed to uncomfortable places, and during those times, how often are we asking and inviting Jesus to meet us in those places? Our prayers can be simple. God, I need your help. God, I am overwhelmed by this meeting I'm about to go to. Help me. God, I don't know what to do about this relationship. Help me. Show me. I can't do it without you. That's all we have to pray. God hears and he responds. He responded to this man. These kind of prayers express our need and they cultivate a dependency on the God who wants to cultivate a relationship with us. All right, there's one more thing that Jesus says to the official, and here is what Jesus said. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Go, and your son will live. That's all Jesus says to him. (laughs) The man has to turn around and walk the 20 miles back home, not knowing if his son is healed or not. He has to trust Jesus at his word. Friends, that is faith. That's an example of faith right there. All he had was a word from Jesus. All he had was one encounter with Jesus. He didn't even see a miracle happen, but he trusted him for the long 20-mile journey home. And the third and final observation about faith is this. true faith trusts Jesus for the long way home. Think about this. What was that walk home like? He didn't know if his son was going to be okay. Not with certainty at any, at any least. I mean, he knew, all he knew is that he had met Jesus and he had to trust him at his word. That was what had to be enough. And to me, this honestly, it just feels like a picture of the Christian life. Like if you believe in Jesus this morning, then I think this is your story. This is our story. What you have done, Or are doing is that you are taking or you have taken your losses, your longings, your griefs, your heartache, your desires, your hopes, whatever they are. And you have brought them to Jesus. You have asked him to intervene. And whether or not he has answered you in the way you've wanted him to, you've met him. You have encountered him. But this is where it really hits home. Everyone here who believes in Jesus, we are somewhere in between meeting him. Having this encounter with him, and then waiting for the fulfillment of all of his promises to us. We are on that journey. All Christians are on that path. We are somewhere in between saying yes to Jesus and our long way home. And along the way, sometimes we don't know what in our lives will live or die. Will our marriage begin to thrive or fall apart? Will our depression and anxiety get worse or will it get better? Will our bodies ever be healed, or will we we continue to live in pain? Will I get this desire, or will I continue to remain in hopelessness? Whatever it might be, all we can do is trust Jesus and take him at his word and start that long journey home. And it is true that for some of us, Jesus will answer our prayer while we're still on the way. That's what he does for this guy. Look with me at the final verses in our passage, verses 51 through 53. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. When the hour was when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all of his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So that's good for that guy and it's good for his son, right? (laughs) That's good. But not all of us will see our situations and our longings and our desires fulfilled while we're on the path home. That's also true. For many of us, we will have to wait until we make it home. Will you be bold enough? Will you be bold enough to trust Jesus for the long way home? Can you trust him and take him at his word. If you do, I promise, actually, Jesus promises, it is well worth it. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your words. Thank you that you've given us your spirit to minister to us, to guide us. Father, I pray that you would give us the courage to recognize that we have need for you. That we need you, something outside of ourselves to help us, to guide us. Lord, I pray that you would give us courage to keep asking, to ask and ask and ask. Jesus, we know it's your joy to help us. And Lord, I pray that you would give us courage to trust you on the long walk home. Keep us safe, guide us, give us hope, teach us, Keep our horizon line on you. We love you, Lord. We love you, Father. We love you, Son. We love you, Holy Spirit. And Father, it's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Spirit, we pray these things. Amen.